Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Hey man, thanks for watching part two of my interview with Benji Nolo. In this part, we will be talking about how porn affects children, boys and girls who are exposed to it. And if you have felt like your attachment to porn is all your fault, if it started out when you were just a boy or maybe when you were just a girl, this episode will be so helpful for you in validating the way that this $100 billion industry has actually exploited you from a young age and you will learn all about the new documentary that Benji and his team have created called Raised on Porn. Yeah, so we wanted to make Raised on Porn to as a way of taking inventory for porn's impact on consumers, but more specifically child consumers. So, um, so there's a unique kind of vulnerability that children have growing up in this world. Um, One of those is the fact that their brain is not fully developed yet. And what I mean by that is that the frontal cortex of our brain is the, what we would call the judgment center of our brain. Um, It's, it's the part of our brain that is the breaks to the pleasure centers of our brain that are the gas. So children who are growing up in this current pornographic age, um, internet savvy technological age where the internet is hardwired into our planet um, are uniquely vulnerable to images that are potent in nature that create a physiological response and um, and um, compel light up the, the pleasure centers of our brain. But without having that judgment center to critically interpret and discern what they're seeing, they are in a sense neurologically overwhelmed by exposure to pornographic content. Pornographers know this. And so there's all kinds of um, seeding of pornography online through um, really insidious means like you could be a kid looking for Pokemon online and end up on a porn site. You could type something and hit Google images and you end up with a whole display of pornographic images. You could end up on Twitter that welcomes users at 13 years old, according to their own terms of service, but also openly um, permits pornography all across their platform. Um, And so, um, so children are inadvertently being exposed to pornography. It is in a very real sense, trespassing into the lives of children who don't have literally the, the, the neurological um, apparatus to interpret what they're seeing, to process what they're seeing, to discern whether or not this is healthy or unhealthy. And so many of them are then again, having their sexuality hijacked and derailed. They're neurologically overwhelmed. They are in a, in a very real sense. It's a kind of like a, a, a technological digital sexual assault on them. Um, 
because of the way that our brain works through neurocoupling, we we find we 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 relate to these images in a very real and uh, uh, visceral sense. And so, um, so when you think about children being exposed to graphic hardcore pornography, it's a sexually violating experience for them. That becomes very confusing. That becomes um, a cocktail of both shame and arousal and confusion and pleasure. And, um, and so, so thinking about the vulnerability of children, thinking of them in proximity to this substance is a serious concern in our world. And we wanted to make Raised on Porn as a way to take an inventory for the impact of pornography on children. Now, just pulling back from that scenario for a second, just trying to like lay out kind of like the landscape of who children are and what they're growing up in proximity to with pornography and just kind of like pulling back from that for a second. I think that most of us in our society can agree that regardless of our views on pornography, we can all agree on the uh, our desire to protect the innocence of children their right to grow up free from, you know, being hijacked, being um, hijacked by these pornographic images to protect their childhood experience, um, to protect them from things that they're just not physically, emotionally, neurologically, socially, sexually ready for. Um, so premature exposure to that things is damaging children, robbing their innocence. And I think that it's a place where, where we as a society can come to a place of agreement that we want to protect our children from those realities. And so raised on porn has become a conversation starter around that specific piece of how do we protect children from this? And I'm guessing that a number of guys who are listening to this are even thinking, yep, that happened to me. I, I have a story. I have a childhood experience where I was introduced to porn at a young age. The average age that, that I've heard from guys in the husband material community is like 11. But we know that that age is getting younger and younger. So for somebody who's processing that this happened to me, I was set up for attachment to porn through these violating invasive experiences? I think that most men actually haven't done the math on the way in which they were victimized by pornography. I think most men think of themselves as voluntary participants and there's a unconscious underlying shame that says you're a perverted, you know, perverted imp. You, you're, you're a, there's this, there's this like deep unconscious, um, poisonous shame that is lying to men about who they are in order to keep them enslaved in the relationship between shame and behavior. So shame says you are bad and 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 you know if you've if you've done something like what like watch pornography or something says you are bad, then that shame 
triggers the behavior because the insidious nature of shame is that it disrupts our sense of identity and places on us a different identity. It Shame wants to identify us with the behavior instead of saying, I am a good person who has done bad. Shame says you did bad because you are bad. And what that does is it triggers more behavior. Then the behavior triggers the shame. So we end up in this ping pong relationship between shame and behavior. And so, um, so I think that the, the issue, you know, when we talk about this for men is, is first of all, understanding that in most cases, you actually weren't a voluntary participant in this, in the way that shame is lying to you and telling you that you were, you were actually a child. You were a child who was acted upon by adults who knowingly created content without any conscious about whether you would be exposed to that and did nothing to protect you from being exposed to it. Like that's a different picture because for a long time, I had this real chip on my shoulder about men and porn users. I thought as I was fighting trafficking, I thought I just saw the men lining up in red light districts. And I thought about guys watching porn and going, do you not understand what you're participating in and fueling? And like, if you just stop, like we would end this injustice of sex trafficking. And, uh, but one day I was in prayer and I saw, I was praying for men, but with like precatory prayers, you know, and with a real like angry chip on my shoulder. I remember seeing the face of this middle-aged man turn to the face of an 11 year old boy. And I suddenly began to weep because it was a realization that most of these men started out as little kids riding around on big wheels, you know, um, living in a, in a, in their own innocent universe and having that disrupted by this, these images that they never signed up for. And the unfortunate kind of aspect of this is that because there's a physiological and neurological response associated with the potency of pornographic images is you in a way can become bound to those images. It begins to shape your sexual template and it becomes a substance of, of like neurological compulsion to go back into that narrative again and again and again and again. And people in a very real sense become trapped in the story in the universe of pornography. And, um, and so I have a lot of compassion for men. I don't think that most men have compassion for themselves. Um, I think that most men beat themselves up, are extremely hard on themselves, critical of themselves, don't have a proper framing for the thing that they're struggling with and are caught in the cycle of shame and behavior. And so I think the work for a lot of us is to reframe our understanding of ourselves and in a way, almost in a very real way, going back to our child self and actually engaging our child self in a conversation, like literally apologizing to our child self that there was no adult there to protect them, apologizing to our child self for the thing that they're being exposed to, um, having compassion on 
their child self. So I think that's where the work begins for a lot of us men um, on the journey towards becoming free, healing, and ultimately becoming empowered to go out and make a difference and claim our true inheritance to become warriors of change in our world. Amen. I realize for some people, it might sound like I set you up to say that, uh, that porn is a pacifier. And it's it's really not, not men who become attached to porn. It's little boys. And so we need to do inner child work and help that boy heal. That's what everything in this ministry is based on. So it's just very validating to hear you say that. And at the same time, I also hear some of my students and clients uh, having some resistance or reluctance to accept these ideas. Uh, especially I'm thinking of the idea of a victim mindset. Um, somebody might say, well, if I really accept what you're saying, then I would take on a victim mindset. And and that's like the worst thing for my mental health is to think I'm a victim. Everything is someone else's fault, uh, shifting the blame. And and so how would you respond to someone who who is feeling torn about these things? We don't like the victim mindset because we feel that it takes away our power. But I think what we have to really understand is that there's a difference between being victimized and being a victim. There's a big difference between that. The idea of victimization is not ultimately aimed towards taking away our power, although some you know, do use it that way and do identify it in that way. The idea of victimization is to understand the way in which we were impacted in a very evil and perverse planet so that we can sort of reconcile with this issue of identity. So it's, you know, understanding that I was not born with these inherent, you know, inherently with these appetites for the, the, this, the, these things, you know, that are, that are in the porn universe that we're exposed to. Um, I had healthy appetites. I had healthy relationships with, with girls. You know, you see five-year-olds, you know, walking across the street in their school class, holding hands one with the other. There's no awareness that anything, right? It's that innocent mindset. The kingdom of God belongs to children. It's there's some inherently innocent nature that we were born with that is corrupted. Understanding that victimization then helps us with wrestle with our own identity, that my identity as a human is to operate from a place of innocence, love, and compassion, right? To help bring light into this world and to help others achieve their sense of identity. I think we can properly and truthfully frame our own victimization through being acted upon in inadvertent ways, um, or even following the curiosity of opening that magazine that was in the bushes or whatever. It's still being acted on. There's still adults who knew better, who were mature, further along in life, fully neurologically developed, that of their own accord, used their power to create those images so that they would be out there in the ultimately in the proximity to children. So that's a victimizing reality. So I can understand both the way that I was victimized as a child while also not holding to a victim mentality because I understand now my capacity as an adult to go back and find freedom for myself, weep over the innocence that was lost, heal that which is broken, and step fully into being a more whole 
integrated, self-connected person. Yeah, absolutely. That even though I was victimized, that doesn't make me a victim. That doesn't determine my identity. And one of the helpful frameworks I've learned from Dr. Doug Carpenter is, is that even though I was a victim, now I'm a survivor and I can become a thriver. So it's really, it's really interesting to think about how porn harms people on both sides of the screen. Yeah, that's why when we set out to do, you know, to, to focus and emphasize and, and research the, the issue of pornography and its role in the larger global sex trafficking reality, we wanted to look at it from a public health and a human rights standpoint. Because even very early on, we understood how pornography, that pornography is having a negative impact on those who are in it, those who are being featured in it, as well as those who are being exposed to it. So we've talked about the unique vulnerability of children. The frontal cortex of the brain is not fully developed until we're in our mid to late 20s. That's one factor, right? Just neurologically. And then emotionally and socially and relationally, not matured enough, right? To be able to reconcile with and process exposure to those images. I mean, even as adults, it's, it's gnarly. Right. So we understand the unique vulnerability of children in that. And that's concerning. And that's why the Protect Children Not campaign, Protect Children Not Porn campaign is so important to demand age verification walls around the hosting and distributing of all pornographic content in order to protect children during this unique space of life in which they're growing up and in which they have a right to their own innocence. Um, so on the other side of the camera, we, as we talked with people in the porn industry, started to see and, and discover the way in which performers were being um, preyed upon and having their vulnerabilities exploited and then marketed and sold for the financial profit of others. Um, one pornography, one pornography, uh, director, producer, uh, explained it to the, to me this way. He said, I don't tell them what's going to happen when I call them on the phone. He said, I just tell them they're going to make a vanilla sex scene. And, um, and I tell them how much they're going to make. He said, because my goal is to get them on set. He said, because when I get them on set, then I know I can get what I want. He said, because two things, number one, he said, they've already spent the money in their head. When I tell them how much they're going to make, most of these people are living so hand to mouth that they've already spent the money in their head. Um, a lot of these performers are living in model houses. They've got roommates. They've got excessive rent to pay. They have drivers that take them to and from porn sets. They have to pay them. They have to pay their manager. There's a cancellation fee if you end the porn set early. So there's all these costs that are already on them and that they're you know, on the hook for. So they, so he says, we get them to set the financial burdens there. He says, then we start into the vanilla sex scene. He says, and halfway through, I'll flip the script on them. At that point, they know that if they don't follow through, they're not going to get paid. So now that money's coming out of pocket that they have to pay for everything else that brought them to that moment. Plus there's the added pressure of everybody on set who's looking at them going, are we going to get a finished scene or not? So he explained it to me this way. They, they flip the set in the middle of the scene. And then they say, now you're going to, you thought you were here for a vanilla sex scene, but now you're going to do this, this, and this. And if you don't, you won't get paid. 
He said to me, how is that not trafficking? The pornographer said that to me. So very well aware that what he was engaging in is a form of coercion in order to get these girls to do they're doing. Well, that is unwanted sex. That is, that is the use of coercion um, to get a woman to go along with something that she does not want to do and is not comfortable with. And then the money is simply used as a bribe to keep her silent about the crime that's happening to her body. But she experiences the sex as a violation of her humanity. And ultimately, that's why so many of them end up with PTSD. So we began to see on that side of the camera the how the vast like backdrop of how pornography gets made is through the use of coercion and therefore has a destructive impact on the lives of those who are in pornography, leaving the majority of them with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. On that side of the camera, I'll just, yeah, sit, to summarize, say that on that side of the camera is an equally disturbing picture. It's not, the cover narrative of the porn industry is look at all these girls who love this, want this, and deserve this, and are making money off of this. And then hitch your wagon to their sexuality. Hitch your wagon to the cover narrative of this two-dimensional image, giving you the come hither look, uh, uh, projecting this idea that she wants you, she desires you, and no deviant sexual you know, appetite is too much for her. She loves all of it, right? That is a very two-dimensional, hollow cover narrative. The deeper truth under that glacier is an abscess of coercion, brokenness, trauma, PTSD, is a whole other reality that is obscured by the cover narrative. If you are going on Twitter, you see a girl, you know, advertising her porn, right? She's going to give you the certain look. You're seeing one part of the story. You're not seeing the girl who was raped, gang raped at nine years old, watched the James Jennison special on E! when she was 12 years old, began to form a very deformed and distorted picture of herself and what it means to be an empowered woman, found herself lured into the porn industry at 18, and then was so traumatized by it at the age of 19 that she had to leave penniless, broken, and homeless, right? That's a real story. Like, and that's the story of so many girls who go into porn. So we're gratifying our sexuality on the lives of people who are incredibly vulnerable and broken and who are even lured into porn at ages that I go like, like 18. Is that really an adequate age of entry to measure one's agency choosing to go into an industry that one scene of will change the rest of their life? Is that the whole thing's an insidious destructive, malevolent force of evil. Yeah, it really is. Thank you so much for educating us about this. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it stirs me up. It angers me at the people who promote porn as something positive and healthy and good for us. It's so utterly destructive to people behind the screen and to people who are being affected by exposure to it. And you don't have to look that far to find it. Yeah. Benji, for you personally, what is your favorite thing about freedom from porn? You know, when I went into this, especially once I was investigating the porn industry itself, had a lot of like old friends who were like, man, I don't know how you do it. I would be so tempted, you know, and (laughs) for me, 
having met these women, having interacted with them on a three-dimensional way, got them past the screen, being able to interact with their humanity, have had the ability to see a more true picture of what's really going on and a more authentic encounter with these people on a human level outside of their sexuality. I think for me, that's been such a gift. Um, I look at our world as a place of not just good versus evil and light versus dark, but as truth versus lies. And there's something very freeing about being grounded in truth and having a clear picture of the world. So the pull of the seduction of pornography has no grip on me, has no seduction on me. And I think for that, I'm just really grateful. Um, and that I don't take for granted because every day we're interacting with people and seeing people who are bound in that lie and that delusion. And their vision is foggy at best and distorted and their sexuality has become very deformed and they don't know how to reverse engineer and get back and have lost their way and are acting out of, you know, shame-based impulses. And, and it's awful. They're not in control of their lives. They're under the influence of something else. And so I'm just grateful to have had this opportunity to discover the truth through meaningful interaction with the authentic person who is just totally different than what the than what the porn industry is portraying. And, um, and I don't, I'm very careful to try and guard that because I'm aware as a human, how easy it is to drink the Kool-Aid and be led down a path. Right. I mean, our life in this world involves suffering. It's painful. We have disappointment, discouragement. There's, we experience rejection, betrayal. There's relational disruptions. There's life disappointments. There's work failures. There's so much, you know, that we go through as humans. Our natural instinct is to self-medicate. And part of that we do sexually to anesthetize the pain of suffering in this life. But Suffering is part of what it means to be human. We are a beautiful, but very broken species. And it's okay to normalize that. It's okay to understand that suffering and pain and disappointment and discouragement is part of what it means to be human. Because it's, it's only when we experience both pleasure and pain, anguish and celebration, that we can drink the full cup of what it means to be human. Like GK Chesterton said it best. He said, we don't, meaningless comes not from weariness of pain meaningless comes from weariness of pleasure if all our life is is pleasure it turns into a very self-indulgent narcissistic and vain shallow existence lost in the delusion of you know all that's being presented to us in our world to discover the truth is to embrace and the very is to enter into the fellowship with the very human experience of wrestling with anguish and pain. And that's okay. It makes us more whole human beings and, and, and increases and enables us to interact with the world in a way in which we can be a source of healing to others. I hear you saying that your real life encounters with the human beings on the other side of the screen of pornography has made you more human. 
Absolutely. I, there was one girl in particular I'm thinking of. She said her story was so utterly traumatic. Yet, if you just watched her Twitter feed, you would think she's the most erotic, you know, empowered, sexually liberated person. Her story was so traumatic. When I interviewed her, she was 19. That I, I, so I got to this point where it felt like the next thing to ask her was, what do you really want in life? Because I just, I mean, just it, again, it was so disturbing hearing her tell her whole story. And she had this moment of self-realization where she actually crossed a personal threshold. She had been so sexualized from such a young age, and you know, which is you know part of the beauty and the curse of being a beautiful human, right? For women in particular, is all the pressures of the sexualization that goes along with that from a young age. Since so sexualized from such a young age that she began to relate out of this hypersexual identity. And then in the porn industry, it's a very, what they would describe as an incestuous community uh, of people who are, you know, the, you know, sort of like insulate themselves from the rest of the world. They actually call people who aren't in the porn industry civilians. So there's this sense of like that you're part of this incestuous community and then all relating to each other with your sexuality on your sleeve and not much more than that. So me interviewing her, I'm asking her questions that are probing at a deeper level. At some point in the interview, she has this moment of self-realization and crosses this personal threshold where she rediscovers her own humanity. Tears begin to fall from her eyes when I asked her that question. She goes, I just want to be loved. That was her response back to the question, what do you really want in life? And I was so like taken aback by her answer that I just like sat there for a moment and, and tried to just absorb the moment. And I said, what would that look like? And she said, um, nobody's ever brought me flowers before. Just somebody buy me flowers. This is somebody who has not only become sexually active, but sexually active for the whole world to see. And had not even had so much of an innocent interaction as somebody bringing her flowers. So pornography bypasses all these social dynamics that, that ultimately bring two people together in this really beautiful, mysterious, powerful, vulnerable, active sexual intimacy. It just bypasses all of that. And it makes it something transactional and objectifying. And so for her, there was this huge gap missing of I'm a, I'm a vessel, an object of hypersexuality, but my humanity is somewhere way over here. And she wanted to bridge the two to find some place of dignity where she could actually feel human in her own body. Two days later, she called me from the emergency room and she had suffered a infection from all the porn she was doing vomited all night and ultimately had to call a taxi to get her to the emergency room. And in that place thought, who can I call that will actually care for me? Mind you, she's in the porn industry right now for some period of time, some months, like that's very telling, right? That she didn't think she could call somebody in that industry to come care for her. She called us who met her once two days prior 
So we show up at the hospital and two days after we had this interview, had the opportunity to be the first people to bring her flowers. It was so awesome seeing her come out of the hospital, like just no, no makeup on, not looking sexy, just in sweats, hair down. And to see the look of shock and surprise and delight on her face that we brought her flowers. Like I really am a human. And so those kind of stories for us have anchored us in a deeper sense of truth about the reality of who people are. There's not a subclass of people out there who just want to be sexually exploited for your gratification, masturbatory gratification. It's just not, it's a lie. It's a fantasy. And there's things in our lives that are so painful or so boring or so anxiety inducing that it triggers this desire to escape into a fantasy. And part of the work for us is to frame that fantasy disrupt it when that trigger happens and redirect it into truth about these kind of stories. These are real humans. This person doesn't exist in the way that they're promoting themselves. And it's actually a violation from their humanity. The dignity for us as men is that we get to begin to be able to partake of being in this world in a whole different way. We actually begin to be in the world in a different way. And where we, we could begin to step into the dignity of being sheepdogs. Like we get it, we get to step out of being the sheep who are just being led around. We get to step out of being the wolf that's preying on the sheep. We actually get to step into a disposition and a mentality and a posture of how do I become a protector, a healer in this world. And there's nothing more exhilarating and powerful and life-giving and joyful as, as that. Amen. Oh, Benji, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Drew. I appreciate, yeah, just the opportunity to sh- share what we've been doing and yeah, hopefully it will be helpful to some of your audience out there. You're welcome. I know it is. And I have heard many times that underneath the porn use of the men who I work with, there is a little boy who just wants to be loved. So to think about the little boy who just wants to be loved, along with that woman you talked about, where what she really wants is just to be loved, feels very powerful to me. Yeah, it's so powerful. It's how we were made. So I am very, very motivated to continue campaigning against the dragon and getting back to how we were made. Benji and his team at Exodus Cry have put together some amazing free resources for you. So please go down to the links below this episode in the description so you can find Raised on Porn on YouTube. You can find Nefarious, the documentary about sex trafficking. They also have a documentary called Liberated, which we didn't talk about, but that's available too. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. And gentlemen, always remember, you are God's beloved son. In you, he is well pleased.